Hello, everyone. My name is Joshua Gilliland, and I am one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks. With me to discuss the Mandal Mandalorian, The Return, is Stephen Tolafield and Gregory Pang. We've both talked about The Mandalorian before, but Stephen and Gregory haven't been on at the same time before. So we have them together. We have our A-team. We have our trio. And we're going to talk about The Return. Gentlemen, starting with Greg, what did you think? I love this episode. I absolutely adored it. The the scene, the scene where you know Bo Katan is leading the, the charge in the air and the armor is right behind her. And then it did not come true with all the, the rumors of oh, is the armor, the, the quote unquote spy, stuff like that. No, man. You know, Lady Crees, your reinforcements has arrived. That was like second to only on your left in Endgame, right? That was, that was just awesome. I just love the episode and I'm very excited to talk legal issues and especially with you two gentlemen. Stephen, what did you think? Um, totally agree. It was so, it was so much action and um, Baby Yoda was yeah, sort of quintessential cute Baby Yoda. It was awesome. I really enjoyed it. And I've, it's been a couple of weeks since I've been here. So I'm so glad I was able to make it back for the finale and check in with you guys. I'm glad to chat about it. So I loved it. It felt like it was made by people playing with action figures, and I'm down with that. But Stephen, you were in Celebration Europe, so why don't you tell us how that went before we dig into the legal issues? It was super fun. I had a really, really good time. The experience was great. It was a four-day celebration, um, which was good. Um, and London, I hadn't been to London in a really long time. That was great. Um, did a couple of the fan meetups were really fun. Um, and that was probably some of the highlights, but it was great to see the, the opening panel where they announced the new films. The Obi-Wan panel was incredible. Um, there was just a lot of really good stuff to, to go around there. It was great. Yeah. I haven't been to London since I was two, oh, so yeah. <laughs> I have no memory of it. Yeah. And uh, what else stood out uh, about the experience? Because I, I did Anaheim. Yeah. But it, I mean, we did Anaheim, but right. you were like the one out of our group who could go this time around. What what did you see? Yeah, um, I, I'll say that the um, the convention center was kind of weirdly crowded in some points. It, it got a little close a couple times in ways that weren't super comfortable. Um, but the panel rooms were largely um, pretty comfortable and um, held a lot of people. And it was it was great to be able to participate in a lot of those. I um, I really enjoyed the celebration store this time. I didn't get a light speed lane reservation until Sunday. So I was a little worried about um getting anything other than picked over things but um there seemed like the inventory was pretty good um i was able to do some really fun um kind of shopping for not just me but for other people too and got some autographs and that was really fun so um being on the convention floor was always a big highlight what autographs did you get um i went to the um i didn't do any of the um photo ops or sort of celebrity autographs. So it was more for books. Um, so the um, the Timelines book and um, the 100 Objects book, um, I, I got to meet those folks. That was really fun. She follows us on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, Kristen, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, uh, hopefully get to actually talk sometime, but yeah, yeah she's, we, we've traded DMs before about events, so 
super cool. Yeah. And thank you for getting the book. <laughs> so, of course. No, it's great. You'll love it. I can't wait. Can't wait. Well, we we all had envy watching you on your adventures. So that looks super cool. And it's like, do we do Tokyo? I mean, if we uh, win, it, it just we'd have to like save up. I I would want to go like see Toho Studios, you know, the good folks make Godzilla mm -hmm. and uh Super Aya Productions, the folks that make Ultraman. And go have a lot of ramen and go see like those robot fighting dinner cafes and that's amazing <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean like we we could do this like it's just need to make sure the trial calendar is clear and and just go for it but is that next year that to like, tokyo two, two years oh two okay years. okay oh yeah, some yeah. time to save up time to save up which okay. is necessary and uh also I, do, I would not want to fly like 16 hours on in coach so like that's uh <laughs> yeah you know i'll say i think i feel like we when we went to tokyo the last time we might have done sort of a premium economy situation that you know was nice but i don't i, I honestly have no recollection of the flight being uncomfortable or great either way so um i think you know tokyo is so memorable that that just the flight there is um you might have to endure a few hours of discomfort but it's so fun yeah i'm i'm very tempted just because of the fact star wars has pulled so much from uh kurosawa and japanese pop culture and stories that it would and filmmaking style it would be fun to go to that because mm -hmm. that's a huge compliment to the source material uh I mean, I, I wouldn't go on a hidden fortress tour, but I would want to go tour the countryside and go see things. So yeah, it's beautiful. Have you well, been? To, have you been to Japan, Greg? No, never. I, I've only been to to Hong Kong as a yeah. as a child. Yeah. So that is definitely on my my list of places to to visit and you know to to go for purposely for that kind of event uh, would be just a bonus right so i i uh, that'd be sounds like a ton of fun it would be a ton of fun my grandfather went several times so first time was the surrender uh and then uh they went two or three more times uh for playing tourist uh he hosted he and my grandmother hosted two different japanese exchange students so again quintessential american experience of you know help fight in a war and then befriend them and and have people come over uh one of the students actually you know like she's in her 60s like you know came halfway across the planet to visit my grandfather in, in his last year so, uh, nice. so yeah, I would love to go to Tokyo. Um, huge, huge fan of. It's be neat to go see. It's really fun. Well, with that, let's talk about something else that's really fun. This episode. So one of you put down as the first uh, topic: resisting arrest. Yeah. Let's break that down for us. Yeah, well, it just struck me when um, when Din was just kind of struggling with those two um, uh, troopers um, that, that he looked like he was uh, obviously uh, resisting arrest, which is obviously a felony and and specifically California here where we are. But of course, resisting arrest depends upon the arrest being lawful. 
um, which seems like probably um, not a very lawful arrest when they've just kind of apprehended him and are taking him to a quote unquote debriefing room. <laughs> Doesn't seems pretty sketchy and extrajudicial in a way that uh, probably does not, uh, it probably justifies him resisting the, the arrest too. But as I was looking into it too, I, I, I realized that there's a California statute that prohibits the brandishing of a deadly weapon while you're resisting arrest um, too, which I didn't realize that's um, kind of an interesting interesting um, appended crime that you can commit, especially when you have, you steal a knife from the stormtrooper's boot and start cutting things and stabbing people. Um, that that seems like, um, if if the arrest were lawful, of course, he would be um, criminally liable for that. But. Yeah, but this looks more like a kidnapping. Yeah, <laughs> for or sure. The, or the Gestapo trying to take him away. So it's like, yeah, punch them, yes. stab them. You... you Self-defense is justified if someone's trying to kidnap you. Yeah, for sure. So, Greg, any thoughts on that as our northern outpost? No, no thoughts on that one. I uh, have some thoughts on the second uh, one, though. <laughs> oh, let's take it away. Because, yeah, the issue of adverse possession of property for Moff Gideon's lair on Mandalore, which, again, that raises the military outpost type of, type of elements. But... Uh, uh, Greg, you first, and then Stephen, let's talk about adverse possession. So this is, it's been a little while since I've looked at anything adverse possession. I did once upon a time teach it uh, at one of the local universities here. So one thing that immediately jumped out at me was um, the uh, the number two in the, the five factors you have here. Uh, first one being adverse possession by, uh, I'll just go through, adverse possession by the plaintiff of the property under claim of right or or color of title. Okay, so this is by the very nature of the, the possession here. So maybe satisfied. Number two, the possession consists of open and notorious occupation of the property in a, such a manner as to constitute reasonable notice to the true owner. So here's where I think you might have a lot of uh, issue here about open and notorious. And this has played itself out. I've never litigated a, uh, uh, you know, a case about this before, but I've uh, known, I've had colleagues that said that this this one can trip them up um, along with the 10-year the uh, time period. But this one here is like, this is a hidden base, right? Was it open and notorious, but it was supposed to be a hidden base. So if I'm trying to adverse possess, like say have my parcel of land beside some other parcel of land, and I'm just pre you know, not so open and notorious means that everyone can see it essentially. Like, this is very obvious that I am putting my shed here and asserting my squatter's rights, as this is uh, colloquial called and colloquially called. So, that's that one. I think that uh, it's for uh, you know, that that kind of civil case, uh, to make someone makes an application to for adverse possession that they might have a problem there. Um, possession is adverse and hostile to the true owner. Well. Yeah, it's it's adverse, right? <laughs> At the very least, and the possession is untrusted for... too, like openly, yeah. <laughs> weapons blazing, hostile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The possession is uninterrupted and continuous for at least five years. So this is a little bit different from our local um, our laws uh, here. This is a uh, ten year. We need ten years of adverse possession. So I take it this might have differences between jurisdictions. So we don't know how long uh, they've had this. Uh, if this is a recent base or this has been he built this shortly after the purge of Mandalore. Um, and then the plaintiff has paid all taxes against the, the property during the five-year period. So uh, I don't, I can't, I'm not sure um, Gideon has paid any taxes on this property to uh, rightful authority, but there was no rightful authority. So, yeah, 
The only thing I, I it occurred to me that the um, that it seems like there's sort of a tribute system going on with those other remnant commanders, um, and that someone seems to be paying someone something. And so I wondered if he could characterize that as like sort of paying a tax. But that is a that is kind of a California. That's a creature of California statute, um, paying the taxes. And then the, we do here in California have that shorter five year period. Um, I was also in the open and notorious thing kind of um, it was interesting to me too, because yes, it is a hidden kind of secret lair for sure. But, um, but it also struck me that what if he argued that he couldn't do something that was more sort of surface because of the way the how how inhospitable the surface was and that everything in Mandalore had to be underground and so it was as open and notorious as it could be with sort of street like uh tie fighters streaming out of that crevasse <laughs> is pretty um pretty open and notorious but I agree it's it's um it's definitely seems to be like designed to be a hidden base I, it might be open and notorious and I say might because anyone who went down there didn't return. It's open and notorious if they shoot and kill anyone that approaches them. Now, they can't warn anyone else because they're dead. But that would, you know, if he has logbooks to say, like, look, these guys came down and we shot them. And then this other group came down and we shot them. It's like, well, you've just documented murder. Thank you. We're going to add that to the war crimes trial. But uh, that I would say if they're opening fire on people, that is open and notorious. It's open and notorious, but I'm not sure if uh, the last part of that part of the test. So as as to constitute reasonable notice to the true owner, mm. if they're dead, you know, like, <laughs> you know, it's a, like that shooting the messenger. At the, <laughs> like, well, I mean, that's probably not, not, not the proper way to, to apply that uh, expression. But you know what I mean, right? It's like, yeah, like, yeah, because they're near the Great Forge. So mm -hmm. which is problematic. Uh, and again, good thing it's a forge so it could survive something crashing near it, bursting into flame. So again, we're going to call that good uh, and some helpful plot armor. But yeah, there's a lot, a lot there. And it's fun to think in terms of adverse possession. Well, let's I get love a little one L property law. <laughs> yeah. From time to time. So I'm one of those guys that loved R5 D4 when I was a kid, just because he was a red droid. He looked different. I do prefer having the the what looks like an eye on the droid. And he doesn't, he's got the three little buttons that don't emote the same way R2 does. But I've always liked that droid. I really like we get to see him have some hero moments in this that include hacking and, you know, scampering around into the base. Stephen, can you talk us through these issues with the hacking issues with R5? Yeah, obviously hacking is a crime. Um, in California, we have a state law that um, makes it a felony to knowingly access um, without permission data um, and to wrongfully um, control, um, to use that data, obtain that data, such as a map of a um, secret base, I guess, wouldn't be included in that. Um, you can also, it's also a crime to access and then take data. Um, in addition to just using it. So that's separate sort of charging. But also federal law um, sort of famously has many statutes, the uh, federal statutes that um, prohibit hacking and 
um, unauthorized access of computer systems. Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which was designed to prevent, um, <clears throat> was initially passed to prevent the hacking of um, government websites and banking institutions, but now pretty much covers all computers, including um, personal computers, phones, laptops. Um, and also the Stored Communications Act, which focuses on the um, access of data um, when it's like resting on a computer. Um, and those two statutes have a lot of overlap. So federal prosecutions often charge people of that kind of conduct with both with violations of both statutes. So um, uh, the um, the scomping of R R5D4, that little like tube thing he plugs into the um, into the wall, that's certainly unauthorized access of a secure um, computer network. Um, and if um, and would be, I guess, unlawful, especially if it's a government computer network, that would be a, a really bad thing for him to have done. But it also occurred to me, I didn't jot it down, that um, that Din also um, says, you know, buddy, I'm going to need you to do this crime for me, which is a very clear solicitation of a crime <laughs> and accomplice liability. So there's a lot of uh, little tentacles going on with that uh, fact pattern. Greg, since neither Stephen and I are attorneys in Canada, did, what kind of computer uh, hacking laws do you guys have? I'm, I would believe something similar to us, but can you opine on that at all? Yeah, uh, I. Hmm, it's, it's been a while. I, I didn't. I remember I used to know the answer to this, but um, I apologize. I didn't look this up ahead of time. But it's. It is. We do have, of course. You know, like uh, some uh, some kind of laws against it, whether in the criminal code or otherwise. So it's uh, what you know. It's, it's just. It's just kind of funny. You know, these open data ports you see all the time in Star Star Wars. It just makes hacking so, so easily easy. But but yeah, we definitely against the law here to hack. Yeah, you. So I have friends in the Coast Guard. Their computers do not have thumb drives. So it's it's uh, and that probably had to be learned the hard way by some government, uh, you know, breach that took place. Um, and it's not like we just didn't have something recently happen. So <laughs> I'm looking at you, Discord servers. Uh, but yeah, it'd be interesting to do a little comparative law analysis. Well, just uh, Josh, just speaking of comparative law, uh, I apologize, I didn't have this uh, ready uh, when we're talking about adverse possession. But I just I noticed when I was reading down the list of the tests that um, in the notes uh, in a, a, about adverse possession, that there's something different here. I remember there's something different about when I used to teach it. And there are a few small differences. And I'll just touch on uh, just run down really quickly. So a lot of it's the same open, notorious, adverse. Mm -hmm. uh, we have exclusive uh, actual possession and continuous possession for the entire 10 years. And that's where it trips up people. It's like sometimes it's not continuous for the entire 10 years. But we also have one more peaceful. It has to be peaceful, it cannot be have, uh, have done, but have been done by force. So maybe just, I don't know, <laughs> nature of uh, how, uh, you know, maybe Canadians where we don't want hostile takeovers to qualify as adverse possession. So uh, just a, a little tidbit there on the differences on uh, how uh, adverse possession works in our jurisdiction. That is fascinating. I I remember continuous from law school and in old cases. I don't remember peaceful. Yeah. Uh, but if everything's somebody- better, Everything's better in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> everything's so zen and nice. <laughs> you know, on the flip side, let's just say there was some- 
like white nationalist group that made a or, or a cult that made a, an encampment on somebody's you know somebody who owns like 500 acres and they carve out two two acres and they build their little encampment and they're doing like military exercises and drills that would not be peaceful right. so yeah, yeah probably not no uh i'm just thinking like the montana situation uh or wyoming something big uh with lots of land that 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 could happen on so let's talk about the critical habitat protections for the Mandalorian farms. Stephen, this sounds like you. Yeah, every time I see like green things and little animals, I think of environmental protections. And it struck me that um, that the they had that. I went back and watched that conversation again about the um, the Mandalorians who had survived on on Mandalore, and they talked about how they didn't. Um, um, that Bo-Katan didn't re realize that um, after those centuries of civil war that anything could still survive on the surface, that every all the people, all the population of Mandalore was protected in those domed cities, and that the rest of the surface of the planet was kind of a wasteland. Um, and that she didn't realize that it was still possible to have those species. And um, the Mandalorian who's there and says that you know, we have these kind of caches across the planet where we have food and shelter um, and it's just all the species that have been dormant and then once we all left they have kind of taken root again and, and rebloomed. So it struck me that if there's these little very discrete areas where the species are recovering um, that might be something where the um, if there were sort of a Mandalorian um, federal government or state government, it might designate those areas as critical habitat for um, endangered species that are at the brink of extinction. Although they seem to be recovering now that the um, that the um, ecosystem is is um, coming back into balance. So um, all those plants be and of course the federal and um, state um, in uh, environmental statutes apply to both um, plants and animals. So all those plants that were regrowing in that little grotto that they were would probably be at least endangered which means that the species is in danger of extinction although they might also be threatened which is just um a, they are foreseeable to become endangered in the near future um, without an intervention so if those little areas are um, designated as critical habitat under the endangered species act the federal government then um requires all of its agencies to consult with the Fish and Wildlife Service anytime there's planned federal action on those properties to make sure that there won't be any adverse modification of the habitat that would endanger um, the species that are, are there or depend upon it. And if there's a species that's actually in the critical habitat, um, any modification of the habitat has to um, go through regulatory processes to make sure that the um, animal isn't actually harmed, which might results in an impermissible take of the species, which has all sorts of criminal and civil penalties associated with it. So it just struck me that it'd be fun to have like little critical habitats all over Mandalore to nurse these um, these dormant species back um, to back from the brink of extinction and back into um, to prolific um, proliferation across the planet. Yeah. Do they have farmers? Do they have people who know how to farm? Yeah. It's a land. I'm yeah, it's interesting because he said that they planted farms and the, the grotto to me, I, I wasn't sure if he was referring to the grotto because that didn't seem like it was like a cultivated, like planned 
farm like you would expect having like rows of plants and stuff that seems sort of like just a, a wild um, ecosystem yeah yeah interesting greg any thoughts on on this um, not really i know you know like we, we have uh, similar laws here like uh the provincial and uh, the federal level for protection of, uh, you know, the endangered species, whether whether animal or plant life. So I found your uh, analysis very interesting there, Stephen. I could see, like, as they rebuild, like, farm subsidies, like, you know, encouraging cultivation of the land and restoration. I mean, the planet's a big Superfund site that you have to crack the glass, remove the glass, there's good dirt underneath the grass where life can bloom. The cleanup is how to do that. And moreover, because you just don't want to shatter glass. Then you have shattered glass. So like, how do you cut it? it do you like a, do you need a lightsaber, you know, to cut through it and then raise it up and dispose of it? Anyway, that's where my mind went for the cleanup operation that you're going to need that would create lots of jobs. <laughs> there's no shortage of things to do, but uh, if they're sitting on a mountain of Beskar, they have currency that others want. So they can, I mean, they are resource rich, so they can reestablish an economy, trade, and get what they need to rebuild their world. So... I don't know if the writers will think like that, but it is kind of fun to to engage in that. Which brings us to the topic of government procurement. And Stephen, talk us through this. Yep. That was a Greg. Um... Hey, I could take oh, it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You did. Oh, talk us through it, Greg. Please. <laughs> okay. So government procurement. So this is something where uh, I I work in in my day job is uh, do a, I do a lot of procurement. I'm in a procurement branch uh, for a, a police service here. And I'll just read, I thought it was interesting, uh, the conversation between Captain Tiva, I think I'm, I'm saying it, or Captain Tiva. And so he's like, let me get this, this at the very end of the episode, let me get this straight. You want to work for the New Republic. And Din says, on a case-by-case -case basis, an independent contractor. And then Tiva says something to the effect of, this is against regulation and won't get approved. And Din responds, which is why you won't tell them. Just to note, Tiva is played by Paul Sun Young Lee, who is Canadian, and who's uh, part of a hit Canadian comedy series called Kim's Convenience. He paid, played the father. So it's really super cool. And he's a big Star Wars fan uh, to see him in this kind of role in such a, a big show. So anyway, uh, props to him. But so this government procurement. So what he's proposing is that he, uh, Din is proposing that you go pay me under the table, or maybe not pay me under the table, but don't go up your chain of command to get this authorized uh, as an authorized purchase with the government, because we've seen how the New Republic uh, responded before when when, when Tiva asked, they, we need to help these people. It's like, well, you can't do that. Don't want to do that or whatever, right? So in, in government land, uh, your procurement is subject to certain procurement rules. And I, I can only reference Canadian 
uh, the, the way we do, do it in, in Canada here. And I'm sure there, there are some similar, um, similar concepts or even legislation, whether local or federal or whatnot in the United States. But we have uh, something called the uh, Canadian Free Trade Agreement. And this is, and, and we have also a new West uh, Free Trade Agreement as well. But the, these free trade agreements are what they sound like, you know, at the international level, that you're, the goal is to reduce barriers to trade. Uh, but in the Canadian Free Trade Agreement and, the, and our domestic ones, they're to reduce barriers within the country, right? Uh, and they set out certain rules on competitive procurement about it as well. And the idea here is that you have to treat all suppliers or potential suppliers equally, whether they're domestic or international. So here, uh, uh, this would be the Captain Tiva trying to procure the services of a supplier of services then for bounty hunter services, I, I assume. I don't know exactly what what kind of work he's going to be doing for him. But um, uh, there's there's going to be public dollars spent on this, I take it. I don't know how he's going to get the money, right? So he's going to try to get the money, but it might not be authorized in his chain of command, chain of command but he's going to get the money somehow, and he's going to pay him, right? So th the idea behind these free trade agreements is that you want because these are public dollars, you want an open, transparent, and predictable environment for businesses uh, to try to win these government contracts, right? Because the alternative is that, you know, without these kinds of rules in place for procurement, is that you're going to have people paying, you know, awarding contracts to their buddies or to, you know, their wives' companies or or whatnot, right? So that's that doesn't make for a very good environment for uh, competing for these government contracts. We know it's just about these kind of relationships uh, or, or whatnot. So uh, here you have a what's called a sole source that's just going to just award to him. You know, and not because there's some kind of, uh, you know, are they old buddies? No, I can't really say that. But there's some kind of soul sourcing going on here. And it would likely be, I think, that given the amount of work that he's going to be doing for him, that it's going to be above what they call threshold amounts. So above a certain threshold amount in under the Canadian Free Trade Agreement is $100,000 uh, or so that you have to, that they're called covered procurements, meaning that they they fall under the rules, but if they're, they're under it, then they don't fall under the rules. So in this case, then if he's going to sole source it, even if he doesn't get chain of command approval, he might be okay if he could reasonably justify sole sourcing. And some of these, uh, the ways you can justify sole sourcing is that there's no other re reasonable alternative supplier. Uh, there might be some kind of emergency brought by unseeable events. And there's also a catch-all for national security, in this case, probably galactic security or something like that. So as we go down that kind of road, so, so how is how is this going to work for Tiva to potentially justify this sole source? Is there no alternative, reasonable alternative to hiring Din for this work? Mm, you know, is he the only one that uh, has a um that is has a force using sidekick i don't know <laughs> is he the only bounty hunter that is trustworthy because we've seen mostly bounty hunters in the in star wars canon as kind of uh kind of, kind of sketchy or something like that um or is this such a matter of public security uh, national security or galactic security th uh, that given the uh, tiva's suspicions about something else going on here that he's the only one you can trust so this is a so they don't want to bring it out to open tender to everyone 
to to be doing this kind of work. I, you know, maybe that'll work, but there has to be some kind of justification for soul sourcing this kind of work uh, to to Din. Otherwise, you can fall afoul of these uh, free trade agreements, and then potentially get some kind of complaint from an alternative supplier, another bounty hunter, saying that this should have been open, open to public tender or or something like that, or just not properly justified uh, sole source, uh, contract, whatever. So anyway, uh, so th that is just a little bit about public procurement, uh, and, uh, what, uh, what kind of issues that Captain Tiva can face in sole sourcing th these, uh, these services to, um, uh, or from DIN. That's a lot to think about because the United States has a history with privateers. Granted, it's way back at the beginning of the country, revolutionary war type situation or fighting Barbary pirates type situation that we hire people to go out and fight. We have things like Blackwater and, and other government contractors, but there is a process for those government contracts. The idea of a forward military base that's remote hiring someone is problematic. Now, if everything is of a small dollar amount or a dollar amount that's like not the cost of an X-wing type of thing, something that's not, well, let's just say problematic, uh, that would make it a little easier, but they're basically discussing doing something off book, which means they're going to cook the books in order to make sure that this stays off the radar, because Tiva doesn't trust his own superiors who are just letting a problem get worse. Maybe yeah. not necessarily off the books, Josh, but he says that you're not going to tell them. Then them can... Uh, sorry, that's my, my wife just getting excited. I think the uh, Oilers scored just recently. Oh, anyway, cool. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell them, telling them might just be, I'm not going to get approval, but this will be accounted for anyway as do public dollar spent in the proper course, but not, mm -hmm. I might not necessarily get approval from my chain of command. So if obviously if like this gets find out, it's disciplinary. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry if you heard that another goal, I think, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think two nothing Oilers now. So Anyway, so I think not going to tell them could appear, could be that uh, instead of cooking the the books as in doing funny accounting. Yeah, that 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 idea makes me feel better. Mm -hmm. And maybe they, as a forward base, they have that kind of authority, that kind of discretion to contract out the harder projects that they need flexibility to do. So it is. There's a lot to think about there, Stephen. Do you have any thoughts? I was just thinking about how the the payment for that first gig was just that relic of the um, of the IG droid's head that's hung over the bars. So that seems like a pretty easy thing to just have like a little in kind <laughs> exchange that wouldn't necessarily raise any red flags. But yeah, so Greg, are you did you identify really strongly with the Tim Meadows requisitions officer uh, <laughs> character from a couple episodes ago? <laughs> yeah, spitting word? image of my boss. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, she, she'd be really mad if I, if I said that. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, just kidding. 
Yeah, because he seemed super that that character seemed very by the book in a way that was obviously kind of bureaucratic and and negative mm-hmm. in a way, I guess, that was portrayed. But um, I could see how that character would not be on board with hiring a, a bounty hunter to track down Imperial remnants in the name of the uh, New Republic. But um, but this might also sort of play into the, the the thread that we identified previously about how the New Republic seems to be so preoccupied with doing things the right way and sort of in a way that's good and doesn't fall into the traps of the empire and sort of um, corruption that they might be missing opportunities to actually um, to um, to thwart the new the new um, the first order before it even sort of starts so um, it's sort of this interesting dichotomy between doing things by the book but then being having the flexibility to play things a little more fast and loose when it might uh, be beneficial to the greater good. Which goes to the issue of, you know, Tim Meadows' character listening to the former Imperial. This is kind of like having the Nazi supply officer. It's like, really? You think you think you're going to get good advice from them who's saying things like, maybe they should feel a little oppression. So they see the value in signing up. It's like, they're getting bombed by pirates. Your reaction is to do nothing and that they should suffer. That is an imperial way of thinking. Maybe you shouldn't have her on your team. Maybe she should be crunching numbers someplace else or mopping the floor, something that you have a war criminal go do, as opposed to something important, uh, compared to the fact that we want people with flexible abilities to go out and hunt down the threat that's still out there that we don't want to talk about. So I, I applaud the idea of doing it. It's kind of like seeing a Nazi hunter in the 1950s or 60s or watching X-Men First Class when a younger Magneto is going around just killing Nazis. I'm okay with that. That did not bother me. I don't want Mando just knocking them off. They should stand trial. And if he has to fit them into the cargo compartment of the N1, that's fine. I don't care if they're uncomfortable. That doesn't bother me. Uh, any thoughts on that? Because I'm way on board with this plan for season four. Like, sign me up. Well, Amanda always had the gave him the option of bringing him warm or cold. So maybe he's just going to bring him in cold and he's just, just going to be the head. <laughs> 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 or just like at the end of a tow cable at the back of the end one yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, uh, just think about our car we have a we have a roof rack with a cargo you know cargo yeah. box or something he's gonna have you know like something yeah. else. he needs a family car man he's a dad now yeah it's, he went from the car. minivan to a sports car like that's, <laughs> that's stepping backwards from i mean that's very midlife crisis for a parent but yeah big divorce dad energy there <laughs> <laughs> oh boy uh yeah the vacuum of space to freeze them that's problematic uh we want them brought in (laughs) maybe cheaper than carbonite but yeah it's and again i'm kind of they're the bad guys uh but that does raise the issue of the dark saber gets crushed in the fight now it's Baskar, so it could have totally survived that explosion. Guybert can come from, like, a star, so, like, that should survive. You got an armor 
they can rebuild that bad boy because why destroy the merchandising possibility of the dark saber i got the fx like saber it is a ton of fun it's a good good toy greg we talked about the constitutionality of is there a secret constitution or an unwritten constitution for mandalore people still seem to follow bo katan post uh uh, dark saber getting crushed what's your thoughts yeah and about the unwritten constitution this could be it could be i think it's interesting to to query or just go back like um at, at what was has been said about the dark saber again is that it's i don't think it was ever said that this is the only way to rule mandalore right this is one of the ways or maybe the 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 prime way uh, that um, uh, the especially the warrior class, because we know that uh, uh, what's uh, what's her name, uh, Duchess Satine, was that her name? Yeah, she was the the rightful uh, ruler of Mandalore. Even though uh, a lot of the warrior class, if you call them, did not like the way she ran the the government, or you know, adopted a pacifist um, uh, position or policy rather. So, so I'd say like it's uh, like. It, the the constitution if, if this is a unwritten constitution or a constitutional norm or something like that is that this could be one way to rule mandalore but it's not the only way to rule mandalore it, it might be the way that it trumps all others if you have that dark saber then everyone wants to follow you and in, in this is our un, in unwritten constitution then you are the ruler of mandalore but there can be other ways to rule Mandalore. Uh, I know for uh, narrative purposes that it was very symbolic is that we don't need to be following, we don't need to be fighting over this, this trinket, as, as Gideon called it, this trinket or this artifact or, or whatever you want to call it, uh, that, uh, um, that has maybe sown division from us before. Bo-Katan leads because she is worthy of being followed and i think din had a really good line there uh in the previous episode where you know our people referring to the covert don't care about what the dark saber means or words to that effect you know what matters to us is uh, loyalty honor it's or whatever he said so i think it's one of those things there that even if it's not in this unwritten constitution it's uh it, it and it's they are willing to follow her now, if we want to uh, go back to the old laws, the old Mandalorian laws, and say, okay, so how can we legitimize this? Or since the society's been destroyed anyway, maybe we can just rewrite the darn constitution itself. This may be the third Mandalore Republic, or whatever you want to call it, right? So it it, um, it has a, but this this is a, a very interesting narrative choice to destroy the dark saber, which I'm sure had almost everyone going <gasps> when it was destroyed and but about it being made of best car like is that uh we're in canon because uh, i've heard that before but i don't know where in canon that, that has been that was mentioned uh book of boba fett when, was it okay when he mando shows the dark saber to the armor mm-hmm. uh, it's referenced that it's a quality of best car he had never seen before oh okay okay it's interesting because like i remember in that same maybe in that same scene is that when he showed her the spear uh that uh she said that you know we don't fashion uh put make beskar into weapons and, and then she melted down the spear and then made the the, the mithril <laughs> what are you going to call it for for grogu there 
so it's it's interesting that it's at least that Darksaber, the hilt is at least partly made of Beskar. Yeah, well, well, they make Beskar weapons all the time. Like mm-hmm. it's just because it could shoot doesn't mean that it, you know, it's it's still Beskar. Or the right. whistling birds, like there's Beskar. So oh, okay, okay. Uh, so I would. She didn't like the spear because it could pierce Mandalorian armor, which seems to be run afoul of what they believe for uh, their belief system about how they commune with their weapons and armor and and what that means to their culture. Mm. So I I can accept it. And the Darksaber is supposed to be like a thousand years old uh, from the first Vizsla that was a Jedi who had been a Mandalorian. And that's about all that I totally know. But there's the fact that you need the force to be able to set the crystal in the right way. So can the armor re- reforge it? Because I was I was getting Lord of the Rings vibes of the sword that the sword that shall be forged anew, mm. and thinking in those terms. And you know, is Grogu the one who's going to reset the stone? Uh, in order for the dark saber to work again, it's still a little awkward for him to hold. But like, where where are they going to go with this bad boy? It's um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And and Greg, one of the things you said too is that when when the when this dark saber was destroyed, that Moff Gideon had that line about how Mandalorians are weak when you take away their trinkets. Um, but um, Bo-Katan's response was, "Mandalorians are stronger when we're together." And so maybe that's a reference to the fact that she's united the tribes and brought Mandalorians together. And that is a more meaningful indication of leadership and sort of the, the center of the, of the, of the government um, than, than the dark saber was. So maybe that had made me thinking that maybe they had grown beyond the need for a dark saber um, to unite the people and that they're more open to being a, a society that works together as opposed to just being all these warring tribes. It also reminds me of, of course, the constitutional peasant in Monty Python that you can't expect to wield extreme supreme executive power just because some watery chart through a sword at you <laughs> the, the, you know the, the whole like myth of um of having the sword that that um, anoints you as the leader um but yeah interesting but it's helpful in a fight so like the, which is why it's like you know the solicitor general to the united states can wear a sword i don't know if they they do or not they got a special uniform and everything i've never i, I don't know if they show up that way to the supreme court to argue ever uh that you know, Stephen, if you have the outfit, I understand, but uh, that's just weird. Uh, but we have traditions like that, so the idea that I, I hope they reforge it and because it's a useful weapon that she knows how to use it well, she's able to defeat enemies well, they're going to need it with the threat that's coming at them. So, why take an option off the table? That said everyone's getting along now and one of my questions was is ax woes raising ragnar because at the end when they relight the forge ragnar's standing next to ax is he now the guardian where's the kid's mom was he a foundling and adopted or is a biological son like how's how's that work but with you know, dad gone is 
is Axe playing dad now, which would be a very nice capstone to the the initially hostile relationship two of them had, and then they learned to get along, and now one raises the other's kid. So again, that's there's beauty in that. But that does raise the issue of adoption that so way back in season one, the armorer tells the Mandalorian, you're as the child's father. Bring him home. We now have this almost a religious adoption ceremony. And Din asks to officially, hey, I'll adopt the kid. So it's now Din Grogu, which means part of the Mandalorian culture has the last name first thing going for it. Kind of like uh, Bajorans on uh, Star Trek. But Bo-Katan Kreese, that's still like first name, last name. So again, it's not consistent. Uh, or maybe a Mandalorian culture is more diverse than than we know, right? Yeah. So like, yeah, like uh, for, you know, like Asian cultures, like uh, like we go last name first. And then you yeah. see that, you know, when, when you're watching the Olympics, that that's how their names are on screen as well. So the family name and then the given names. Yeah, I was about to say, there are cultures on earth that do that. So yeah. maybe the covert, they do it that way. And the non-helmet group does it the other way. So... And everyone can get along and live happily ever after still. So, which is part of having a multicultural society. But in California, it says, you know, the law says that an adult can adopt a minor who is not married. And that's California Family Code Section 8600. However, a prospective adoptive parent or parents shall be at least 10 years older than the child. And that's also California Family Code Section 8601. Mathematically, in California, that adoption could not work because the kid is older than the adult. Our law does not account for different species that have different lifespans adopting each other. That problem doesn't happen here. But That's what, hilarious. I hadn't thought of it. <laughs> it's really funny. But what does happen here is guardianships. So somebody who, because of uh, an injury or a physical condition, they need a guardian to take care of them. Groku can fall into the needs a guardian category because even though he's 50 or 52 by now, I'm not quite sure. He's still a child according to his species. So he needs someone that can raise him and take care of him. So that would be a guardian relationship in California if I was trying to make this legally work. And they might have, it'd be fine to say with from your, your perspective, your, your religion, sure. Father and son, we're down with that here. Legally, it's a guardian relationship just because that's the only way we can make this work because this problem doesn't happen with human beings. It, it's, it's like I'm adopting the 100-year-old turtle, you know, it's just as a kid type type of thing. It's which is weird, but if you're a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan, maybe that could work out. Still, it's it doesn't happen. 
but that's how we could at least legally make it work. Now, just on the fanboy side of things, did anything else jump out at you about this episode, whether it's the fight or the Praetorian guards committing child abuse because they were just going to murder Grogu? It was, I, there was so much action in this episode that I just loved. I loved Axe Wolves's, uh crashing the ship into the base. That was so cool. And the, the fights were really fun. Um, but to be honest, um, I loved that the episode and the season ended on such a peaceful, rustic, domestic note that you so rarely see that in Star Wars. And it was just so sweet and um, and really fun way to end this chapter of the story. And there was no like post-credit, like spooky thing threatening anyone. It was just like a nice happy ending. <laughs> it's so nice to have that in Star Wars once in a while. With a written deed. Yeah. Oh, yes. I meant to mention, <laughs> I was relieved finally <laughs> that someone has conveyed property in writing. <laughs> grief didn't go this is your land like that that didn't happen it was this is your land and here's the deed big boy we actually built you a cabin it's ready to go because we knew you would be back go for it there's frogs too uh yes Greg. How, how about the other land that uh it was ceded quote unquote to yeah. the mandalorians don't you know, maybe the Man uh, Mandalore is still using that as a some kind of base or or something like that. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, don't operational know platform. I mean, it's good to have the yeah. flexibility. I mean, maybe yeah. they. I mean, maybe living on Mandalore is going to be really hard for a long time. So mm -hmm. having that outpost, maybe that's where kids live. Yeah, and like so, they're. You know, and, and they have interstellar travel, so they can jump back to the planet and go, hey, you know, we're home after several days of work. Uh, we've been cracking open mountains of glass and removing them from the planet. So because that's going to be labor intensive to clean up the Superfund site. Imagine Three Mile Island, but bigger. <laughs> planetary wide right so <laughs> yeah it's just they got glassed it's just like the mojave desert glass i just ugly <laughs> it's just uh there's a lot of digging to go do so you know it's that would be roughing it as opposed to maybe they get pre-manufactured homes and you know they have those on navarro and that's where they do the most of their living while they're rebuilding um, was was I, I was trying to remember when when um grief grief gave the uh ceded the land the property to the mandalorians was that in exchange for them providing protection to navarro no no it was just it was, no, it was an award right? yeah it was an award you, you saved our hides here you go yeah. this is you can live here now we're yeah. you, welcome to stay and maybe some of them do i mean yeah. they can spread out and so again, they have storytelling options. Well, speaking of storytelling, uh, one thing that I quite appreciated, I thought it was kind of funny with some fans complaining about was the the red herrings that were thrown out, you know, like the uh, stuff to kind of 
have you guessing you know like the the shots the the shot choices of the armorer and then of axe wolves uh and then maybe your suspicion you know because of the title of the the spies plural right so and then when if some people were kind of upset it's like why did you do all that well because they already sowed some seeds of doubt uh, not seeds of doubt but they already gave us the backstory of uh and i think bull katan explained that we've always been fighting each other right? We've always been fighting each other. So it was a good way to throw in some red herrings to think, oh, is someone going to betray someone? But I'm glad it didn't go down that trope and that it, they were they came together at the most critical moment to fight, you know, the common enemy, fight for their home world. So I, I really like that. And, um, and it, it's, you know, with, with red herrings, as, as someone who used to teach, and of course, we remember from law school, in your fact patterns, there's always red herrings there to try to throw you off, right? And I think these were something that uh, I, I enjoyed, and I'm glad they subverted the uh, expectations of someone betraying the group, because I would have really not liked that if it was Axe Wolves or the armor, because it's kind of tropey that way, right? So another thing that I really enjoyed about the, the way the, the writing of this um, is that I partly expected, um, I don't know why, I partly expected that, well, they're now all home, so they'll now all take off their, the covert, they'll all take off their helmets and they'll all be one again, right? But they didn't, you know, and this is okay. And you saw in that final shot when, you know, when they're all in the forge and relaying the forge that they're mixed in together, the, uh, the, the maybe call them secular Mandalorians and the uh, ultra-Orthodox Mandalorians, and no one seems to have a problem with it, at least right there. And hopefully this is one thing that they'll go forward that, yeah, they they were suspicious of each other, uh, each other. And then Gideon said they're sworn enemies, but you could be different. You can believe differently, but you can all come together and be one people and respect each other's cultures as, but be still be the same people. So I appreciated that, that they didn't they also fall into the trope of, oh, we're just all going to be one. And we also have to be homogeneous to be able to, to get along as a, as a people. No, it's like there is diversity here in, in their beliefs. And hopefully this means that going forward, that there won't be fighting over that anymore. That's a great observation. Thanks for saying that. And it's, it's, it's a good thing to point out too, because in Star Wars, worlds are so monolithic. They're portrayed as having sort of a monoculture. And yes. it's like the jungle planet, where it's like a <laughs> complete jungle, you know, and, and that's in, in sort of underscoring that Star Wars is really kind of about diversity and being stronger together, um, even though you come from different backgrounds. Um, I think it's great. Good observation. Thanks. It's, you know, the part of the American experience has been promoting the great barbecue. Like we all get together and you have the, the community get together and there's everything from very different backgrounds, very different cultures, because we're all on the same team now. We're all neighbors now. We're all together now. And you can have churches of different kinds on the same block and everyone live in harmony uh knowing that yeah there's like oh he's presbyterian like so <laughs> big deal it's just ooh, episcopalians are running around like that's not a thing so being able to have that diversity and especially again if we see acts is Ragnar's guardian now. You know, he's taking in a kid who's going to wear his helmet all the time. And it's like, okay, that's what he does. <laughs> you know, it's like, 
dad and I had a rough relationship, grew to respect each other. I'm now raising his kid because he died saving us. Here we are. Like, I'm, I'm fine with that. And that is a great message from Star Wars on being united despite having differences and recognizing commonality. And Star I think Wars one thing... Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just about to say, I think one thing that helps solidify that, and I might be reading into it a little bit, but we've been told that the stories are uh, they're like they seem like they have very strong oral traditions in the mm-hmm. Mandalorian societies on, on both sides the covert and the secular so it's the story that matters for a dark saber and the stories passed down on, on the covert and and uh, and the like so I think there's two big stories here that could uh, have brought them together even closer after obviously the, the battle itself but Paz's big heroic sacrifice at the end of the penultimate episode Right? They're going to be probably singing songs and telling stories about that for ages. And then Axe Wolves and uh, his almost self-sacrifice there. That, that was amazing. You know, like, uh, and even there, I was guessing, okay, so is he, is he going to be the spy? He's going to betray them and take this, take this ship and, you know, do, no, no, man. He's, he almost killed himself, but he managed to get away. And that was really cool how he got away. So, so I think it's part of those stories that despite the differences in their practices and uh, in, in the, the, the way they, they look, because one's always wearing their helmets and ones aren't, they, they have these stories to bind them and to, to forge uh, you know, metaphorically forge this uh, uh, united culture together, you know, and partly, you know, in, in combat, of course, but uh, yeah, I think that's very important for the Mandalorian story. At least that, that's the way I read it. No, it's, and that's a good way to read it. And I mean, like, I feel the same uh, about it, that they're united. They had a common threat. They now all want to go home and they're, They'll take their shot of living together and, and rebuilding their world. And it's just, it's frequently in Star Wars, like governments completely fail. And you don't have like people coming together in a functional society. It's all these ragtag groups just trying to get by and defeat the evil empire. The idea of seeing a planet become functional. And it's like, yeah, this is what we do. (laughs) It's uh, barbecues on Thursday. Hope you can make it. Like, bring a potato salad. Don't put raisins in it. Like, all of that would be nice to see, to to have that kind of functional society as opposed to everything is just strife and discord. And, you know, there's some ugly underbelly of crime lords run this place. So you're going to need to accept the drug dealing. It's like, no. No, that doesn't have to be the situation. It could just be okay. Which it's this ends with hope. And Grogu let the frog live. So hopefully he's changed his dietary habits uh, as well. But we'll see what the future brings. Uh, Stephen, did they talk about a Mando season four at Celebration? No, there was no Mandalorian panel at Celebration. Um, the Apparently, John Favreau has confirmed that there is going to be a Mandalorian season four, but probably it seems like maybe not until 2025 um, at this point, because Ahsoka is coming out at the end of this year. Um, and of course, they did announce that the sort of Filoniverse culmination cinematic event of all these 
live action series and animated and live action series is going to be is going to happen on the big screen. So I imagine at some point they'll have to turn their attention to developing that film. Um, so who knows uh, when that's going to be? Yeah, I I bet it's a version of Heir to the Empire, but that's just me because the Ahsoka trailer has her say Heir to the Empire. They're just teasing the fans with a, a very well-known story so yeah and i i didn't i wasn't in the ahsoka panel i couldn't get into that one so i i, I only saw the abbreviated trailer that was on the live stream i didn't see the thrawn reveal um in the in the main trailer so looking forward to that yeah i agreed uh so the future's bright did you get to see the skeleton crew trailer yes what does that look like? Because that it, one's not online. It looks super fun. It looks like, um, do you remember like um, Flight of the Navigator or Short yeah. Circuit or something like that? Where it's it's a bunch of kids who are like on the run with um, with Jude Law. It looks really fun. It's like there was fully a shot that you remember from the eight from, from those eighties movies of them running through a dark forest with like the flashlight beams bouncing as they run. It's very that energy. It looks really fun. Okay, so it's Goonies, Flight like of Amblin. Up. Yes, it's that um, that vibe for sure. Awesome! Uh, yeah. Wow, uh, that is I can't wait, can't I'm wait. Um, so okay, well then, we'll call this a recording. So everyone, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us on this adventure. Wherever you are, please leave a review. We appreciate that. And until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay geeky.